Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Thank you to everyone who's able to stick around for the question and answer period. And uh, we're going to now get into the questions we received throughout the presentation. Um, and you know, as, as you may know from having attended these in the past, whether with us or, or others, uh, taking things on the fly may lead to a little bit of uh, uh, hesitation in terms of being able to answer right away, but it also allows us to kind of explore the discussion a little bit more and, and continue to kind of go down a path if, if others have questions that are follow-ups to what we've got here. Um, as I said, uh, just for the purposes of people who are listening to this or seeing this for the first time through our broadcasts, this question and answer period is related to uh, the presentation on the developments in COVID-19 vaccination policy requirements and guidelines for the childcare sector. Um, so thank you again, Danielle, for organizing our questions from the Q&A and thank you everybody for, uh, I think this is the first webinar we've done that actually everybody was able to follow the directions and put the questions only in the Q&A portion and we didn't get really any in the chat. Um, a couple of comments uh, in the chat, but uh, we've largely been able to uh, to do everything through the Q&A, which is great. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I do see one question in the chat there um, before we before we uh, broke off and I apologize for not switching that over. So um, uh, I'm just gonna make sure it's not in the questions that we have here. So I'll, I'll address that quickly. So um, from obviously a not-for-profit childcare our board of directors have questioned if any childcare employers have been sued by employees uh, successfully for contract for contracting COVID in the workplace. So, um, first of all, we haven't seen, as Arjun mentioned, the cases um, in the non-arbitral context are slow to get to litigation and decision stages. Um, so, I don't anticipate that we will have any non-unionized, i.e. You know, common law decisions um, necessarily in, in the, the next few weeks or, or even months necessarily. Um, what I can say generally though is that if you have a policy in place and you're able to demonstrate that the policy is reasonable and you applied and enforced it and that, you know, essentially there's nothing else you can do, right? Like that's that's the defense to a claim that somebody contracted COVID in the workplace and it's your fault, employer. Well, you followed all the government guidelines, you had a policy, you enforced it. Um, I think it's gonna be very, very difficult case to make for anybody who, who takes that approach. Now, does that mean people won't try? No, of course they will. Um, that's just the, the world in which we live. There are all kinds of crazy claims and you can ask uh, any of us on this call what we're dealing with in, in various situations. But um, in terms of somebody suing successfully 
for a childcare or for any business who's been allowed to operate uh, as long as they have certain measures in place, which is the case for all child cares, and you've had those measures in place and you've enforced them. Um, I, I don't foresee, you know, and this is not legal advice because we don't know your specific situation, but that's the, you know, the, the outlook. So I think your board of directors, um, you know, can review what uh, measures they've taken. And, and if you have specific questions or if you're concerned um, about any specific situation then let us know but if it's a kind of general worry um i think you should you know take solace in the fact that um you have likely done everything that you can to protect yourself and that the courts will see it that way as well so first question and you know obviously a big one um <clears throat> in terms of the three doses right so we saw uh what was it i think the end of last week, Dr. Juni, right, the head of Ontario Science Table came out and said, what are you doing? Feds, provincial government, we should be changing this definition. We all know that, you know, as much as two doses is, is helpful uh, in preventing hospitalization and, and ICU um, occupation, it doesn't print at this point. The second dose for almost everybody who got it um, had a really waning uh, efficacy against transmission and infection itself. And with Omicron being the dominant strain, we see how transmissible it is. The booster makes a big difference um, in both, you know, ensuring the protection from hospitalization in ICU, but also in transmission. And you know. Even if Omicron is less severe, it's still massively disruptive. So, you know, without getting into the socioeconomic and political uh, debates and philosophical reasons why we should or shouldn't do, um, you know, any of the kind of things that have or haven't been done by the government from a reopening standpoint, um, from a scientific standpoint, that third dose should be the definition of fully vaccinated. Now, it's not. So what does that mean? If you've got a mandatory vaccination policy and it's based on the definition of fully vaccinated being two doses, can we up that yet? And you know, we started getting this question when the boosters first became available for the general population. And at the time it was almost impossible to get. So the practical problem at the time would have been, well, how are you going to attach any kind of timeline to that? Because they weren't available. Like, you know, people were booking into March and so on for boosters. Now, I was able to sit outside during the holidays for uh, several hours, as some of you may know, to, to get my booster. But I also talked to people who, you know, three days later uh, were booking into middle of February and, and, and March to be able to get a booster. So making it mandatory in any kind of finite timeline at, at the time that boosters first started becoming available to the general population was not possible. Does it mean that we shouldn't encourage or modify our policy to reflect the fact that a third dose will be required? I think that's the way that we, we need to approach this. And you know, if you've uh, developed your policy uh, appropriately, and I see you know Tracy's comment here about using the the template that CC Partners 
came up with for the vaccine policy back in August and September. And uh, as most good policies have, it, it does mention that the policy may be amended or updated from time to time, depending on guidelines from public health and or best practices or you know information that comes to light. So I think at this point, it's not necessarily mandating three doses, but signaling to people that a third dose is not only encouraged, but will likely become mandatory in the coming uh, weeks and months. The problem is we still can't necessarily attach a timeline to it because we don't know the complete availability of appointments for, for boosters. Um, I think, uh, you know, on a case by case basis, we can, we can look at it, but in general, I would say it's not yet appropriate to mandate three doses in terms of changing your policy, but in terms of advising employees and possibly changing the policy to say, we anticipate, you know, currently fully vaccinated means two doses. At some point in the next, you know, little while, it could be, we expect it'll change to three doses and we're encouraging everyone to get three doses now. And if your policy provides for, um, you know, paid time off to get those doses that will apply for third doses, all those kinds of uh, changes. So um, that's kind of a, I mean, long-winded, but uh, a, 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 as best as we can say, now is not the time to make it mandatory for third doses um, because it's just not there. Um, next question. Brandon or Arjun, neither of you want to take that one? Yeah, I can I can certainly discuss this one. So the, the question is, does the Chief Medical Officer of Health memo overrule the TDSB mandatory vaccination policy? Um, if you're in the Toronto District School Board, um, the, the TDSB policy or, or the memo that directive that they put out, um, as I kind of expressed, it's a bit more restrictive than the, the new instructions by the Chief Medical Officer of Health. So to give effect to both of those, um, you know, following the more strict guidelines um, may be advisable. Um, if you're outside the TDSB, the new issuance, the new instructions from the Chief Medical Officer of Health um, are likely the minimums that you'll need to, need to have in your policy. So um, I wouldn't say if you're in the TDSB, I wouldn't necessarily say that this, this memo or these new instructions overrule anything because you'd still need to give effect to the, the TDSB um, directives. Um, Kelsey or Arjun, if you wanted to add anything to that. I, I think you captured it quite well. It's not it's not about overruling. I think they work in conjunction with one, one another and, and the TDSB applies to a certain uh, geographic area, right? Where, where the, whereas the chief medical officer is kind of more widespread and really applies to practically everyone. So uh, we look at that, that those instructions as a minimum and the TDSB is a more stringent policy for that certain geographic sector, but you can certainly go above and beyond that policy as we, as we discussed previously and depending on, on your workplace and what reasonable alternatives uh, are, exist to you. Uh, so there's a question here, the next one regarding the the template or the the policy we the best practice policy we had created back, you know, it seems like a long time ago in September, right? When when everyone's going back to school. Crazy enough that I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Kelsey or Brandon. I, I don't think there are very many uh changes or or amendments or additions we really need to make to that policy right now. 
we were a bit ahead of the curve and, and we have been recommending a quite stringent policy when you're dealing with children, daycares, uh, childcare centers, and the like. Uh, what Kelsey did mention previously is that you might want to add in <clears throat> language regarding, you know, there's a there's a, a necessity for two doses right now, but we anticipate in the near future, especially as I've seen some comments in the Q&A discussing how, you know, especially in your sector, there's been more than ample opportunity to get that booster. For a layman like myself or Kelsey, you know, we had to wait outside for hours and and to get that vaccine. Whereas for you guys, I think there's a little bit more priority because you, as, as you should be, right? There are less alternatives available to you. So it might be more reasonable for you to change that definition earlier than for say a, a law firm. So putting language like that might be a good way to preempt it and to, to make people aware that there will be a requirement for that third dose, even though there's no timeline associated with it yet, at least they're, they're aware. And you could even rely on that down the line saying, look, on X date, you know, end of January, we, we made them aware that there will be a requirement coming up. And, and that's why when you institute a certain date, um, it will be even considered even more reasonable. But that's really the only thing I see that you would maybe need to change with your policy, unless you want to make it more stringent. Like, you know, we've, we've created policies that offer many alternatives. Uh, when we were trying to wade through these really uncertain waters, if you feel more confident that that you'd really like um, full vaccination, uh, especially with Omicron, that's something we can definitely discuss with you and, and see if we want to make those revisions to your policy. Yeah, thank, thanks, Arjun. And, and that does uh, both kind of encapsulate Lisa's comment, I think what, that's the one you're referring to about the, the prioritization of educators, uh, which, by the way, finally, um, uh, and even that wasn't done uh, the way it should have been. But anyway, we all know the, those complaints, and and I'm sure you all share them. Um, but and that's what I was getting at with with signaling, and that also goes into the next question: How much notice should we give? And and I think Arjun's hit the nail on the head when he says, "Look, because you know you've got priority, because you know that it's coming, and because Dr. Juni and you know may someday be able to convince." Um, the the other the uh, the powers that be in in the provincial government at least that the definition should be changed. You can make it a quick turnaround. So the signaling and the notice now um, that in the future we expect it to be uh, fully vaccinated. And so we encourage you because we know you can get it now. Um, I think that's the way to to go, right? And and then, um, like Arjun said, you're able to implement a quick turnaround and a quick change to uh, or add that additional requirement in with not too much notice. Now, how much notice should we give specifically? Um, you know, I, I think that's a matter of, and I apologize that I don't have this answer and I don't know that I would have it specifically anyway, but I haven't looked at what the wait times are right now and nor have I compared those to what uh, you know, the wait times for non-prioritized um, uh, people would be. But I suspect that if you were to put in a, a two-week notice period, if and when that, you know, saying, look, we expect, so I'm going to play this out. Again, not legal advice. We're just playing something out here uh, based on the questions that we've received. But um, you know, if we say, okay, well, we've got a mandatory vaccination policy. Currently, the definition of fully vaccinated is two doses, but we expect that that definition will change um, either officially or 
for the purposes of this policy. And when that happens, we will provide you with two weeks to become, uh, to bring yourself into compliance with, with a change to the policy. And, you know, so that's a very clear signal. Hey, get it done now, right? And, and that's kind of uh, exerting some pressure on employees without making it currently mandatory and also being clear with respect to so you know when when you're talking about effective policies and effective enforcement and implementation of policies one of the rules that um, adjudicators look at if if a policy or the implementation thereof is challenged is whether proper notice was given of any change to such policy and so signaling it now both has could have the effect of you know convincing some people to to get on the uh, booster train earlier than they might otherwise do as well as allow you to uh, implement it quickly um, if and when that definition changes and we may be able to have this conversation in you know two weeks or another month and know that the definition has been changed or we may be having it differently and saying well are we willing to change it for ourselves at this time and uh, that's going to be based on you know information that keeps uh, keeps coming to light over the next few weeks you know if there's one thing we've learned over the last two years um, it's that uh, the the constant upheaval uh, of covid is is uh, something <laughs> that we know is is not going to change right and that's it's funny to say that you know, you've heard the expression change is constant, but nowhere has that been more evident than in uh, in COVID times and especially for childcare and, and, and schools where, uh, you know, coming back to school and childcare got informed of things on the long weekend. So, you know, those kinds of things are, are ridiculous, but controlling what we can from our, uh, our perspective means um, anticipating what's going to change and, and providing notice of um, of those changes as best we can. <clears throat> um, so I think then the, the next question down would be, uh, what's a reasonable alternative if remote work or testing is not available? And you know, as Arjun mentioned, I, I think it's tough, right? Uh, you know, Arjun, I don't know if you want to revisit your your comments there, if you have additional thoughts. Yeah, if, if, if testing is not available, and obviously we know remote work is quite challenging to offer, um, it really gets to, to how you're going to manage an absence, right? So it would be a leave of absence uh, for an indefinite period um, until they're able to be vaccinated or until, you know, something changes, right? That That's really the, probably the most reasonable way to look at it. We've seen some very stringent policies from very prominent employers. I'm not going to mention names, but there, there are some that have said, be directly towards termination, right? Uh, we don't recommend that uh, because it doesn't hurt you to put them on a leave of absence and just keep the job available for them if they want to comply with your policy. So that that is really what we see in, in especially in the arbitration cases and, and even what we just recommend to our employers. There's nothing unreasonable about saying here, here's our policy for the health and safety of, of our your employees and your colleagues and then the community. If you don't want to comply with it, well, we're going to keep your job available to you, but you'll be on an unpaid leave of absence until further notice. So uh, that's really what we recommend in that regard. And I'll move on to the next question too, unless anyone has anything to add for that one. Um, the question is regards to if you need to pay for more than three days. Uh, so that relates 
to your employment agreement on, on what is provided to the employee in terms of a greater entitlement. But assuming that you don't offer any sick days or any anything above what's being offered by the government, they know that you don't need to pay them for more than three days, but you do provide them for a, a really an indefinite amount of time for sick leave for, for an infectious disease emergency leave. Um, so that, that's really what the entitlement is under the Employment Standards Act. Brandon, since since you've been sitting there quietly, we'll let you take the last question on this on this slide. Do we need to provide supply staff with the three days if they become sick while they are scheduled? Um, so with respect to that, I, I think I'd maybe Kelsey might actually be better to answer this because we need to know more probably about how supply staff uh, are paid. Um, and and yeah. that's probably a little bit out of my scope. Yeah, no, I think. <laughs> And so, Brandon, you can thank Arjun for putting you on the spot yeah, there. I, yeah. I was going to address that, but that's exactly what I would say. I think I think that's a little too um, specific to the circumstances to to answer in this type of forum. So I apologize to whomever um, put that question in, but we would be happy to to discuss it offline. Um, you know, generally, if they're entitled to sick days under the contract of employment then the way that they exercise those sick days would be the same, whether the reason is COVID or otherwise. Um, but we could, of, of course, take a look um, at that. Before we go um, directly into this, this next question, you can leave the slide there, Danielle, that's fine. Because um, I think it does um, address a couple of things, but there are some you know, comments back and forth in the, in the Q&A um, there. So about rapid testing, right? So Janet, um, you know, how frequently can we ask non-vaccinated staff to rapid test? And then Pam's comment about if we don't change the, to the three doses, can we do two doses plus testing? Um, those are both good questions. And so we see, you know, when you look at uh, the policy itself, sorry, um, not the policy, but I'm just gonna go back in my notes here. Excuse me. Um, to so the the directive from the chief medical officer of health says regular antigen testing, right? At least once every seven days. Well, that's not really good enough. And then I think here again, guidance from the TDSB policy because of the setting is relevant, right? And um, you know it's. Tracy, I recognize that uh, you, you mistyped and it's three times a week that CDSB requires it. And, and that's always been the question, two to three times a week. Um, you know, because of the transmissibility and the, and the, the high incidence, incidence of infection of Omicron, I think three times is, is relevant. Now, are you going to have access to those tests and testing? Maybe a different story. But, um, you know, in terms of answering that question, how often can we do it? I don't think it's unreasonable to say three times. And Pam, with respect to you know an, an interim measure before the definition changes to, to three doses, I think that's reasonable as well. Uh, if we say, look, we're not currently changing the definition of fully vaccinated, but we know that breakthrough infection is rampant with Omicron. And so if you only have two doses, you're going to need to test. Makes sense, and you know whether as an interim measure or as um, you know a permanent change to your policy, I think that's uh, that's a good step as well. 
Um, so then moving back to the questions that Danielle has um, provided here, and I know this question comes from Marie. Um, if a unionized environment provides sick days and fits the criteria for reimbursement, according to the ESA or WSIB, would we extend the sick day entitlement to the employee as it pertains to the collective agreement? So um, I think, and, and you know what, Maria, I may even ask, um, I may even invite you to speak here just to make sure that we understand the question specifically. But I think what the question is aimed at is, um, you know, is it okay to do that, notwithstanding the fact that the collective agreement says A, B, and C about um, uh, about sick day entitlement? So, oh, Maria has Maria has left. Oh no, there you are. <laughs> So Marie, I've, I see your hand up and uh, I've, I've done the thing that allows you to talk. And... Hi there, can you hear me? We can, thank you. Perfect, awesome, thanks Kelsey. Um, I think this, this question has come up in our center because one of the biggest questions coming from our, our unionized employees is what happens when they use up all their sick days. So they have a bountiful package. Um, I'll just throw out a number. I'll say, for example, they have 10 sick days. Um, once they use up all these sick days, if we're getting reimbursed for um, the ESA or WSIB um, benefit, would we in turn be giving that back to them? So, and here's, here's where I think we go back to the, and I may have confused things by talking about the kind of retroactive stuff first, but if we're talking about, um, you know, giving them extra sick days on top of, uh, of what they already get, that's not what the ESA provides for. Right, the ESA reimbursement provides, it's basically to cover anybody who doesn't already provide sick days or because of. I think we lost you, Kelsey, your sound. Yes, I had muted myself while Marie was talking. Um, that's okay, I, that was my rehearsal for this answer. <laughs> but I, I think it's basically going back, Marie and, and everyone to, um, you know, what I said, and I apologize if it made things more confusing, but the ESA reimbursement is not about adding sick days to um, contracts or collective agreements where those are already provided. What it was designed to address in the moment in April of 2021 was the specific instance where somebody had already exhausted some or all of their sick days and needed more. But on a go forward basis, ESA reimbursement is not for employers who already provide enough sick days that they provide a greater rider benefit than what's under the ESA. And that's always the uh, analysis with respect to Employment Standards Act, whether it's COVID provisions or any other entitlements that are provided for under the ESA. If there is 
uh, an entitlement under the ESA that is also captured by uh, an employment contract or a collective agreement. And it's a greater right or benefit under that contract of employment or collective agreement, then that will supersede the ESA entitlement and not be in addition to. Right. So what I said is you get the leave. We certainly can't prevent somebody from taking the leave, uh, the IDL, but if they've exhausted their sick days, then that the rest of that leave is going to be unpaid. Excellent. Okay, thank you. And so if, if you do get reimbursed, you're only getting reimbursed because you've already paid that employee, right? So it's not an extension. Like he, the ministry is not going to pay every employer an extra three days for every three days that somebody takes because of COVID. They're only going to reimburse those employers who meet the criteria who have already paid the employees. So nothing extra is ever going to employees um, through the reimbursement program, at least. Great. Uh, Thank you. No problem. Thank you, Marie. Um, so our last question was the one I addressed at the outset uh, with respect to um, employees suing successfully. Um, and I see a couple more things have popped up in the Q&A. Uh, where are we here? <clears throat> I think we've answered Teresa's question. Uh, the first one, at least. There we go. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, so then the second one. I think we and I think we've talked about that as well in terms of the Omicron surge, um, in terms of being ready to either implement, um, you know, providing notice that a third dose is going to be necessary and that you're going to be required to get it pretty quickly to encourage that to happen now, even before the definition of fully vaccinated changes. And also the um, interim or alternative measure that, uh, that Pam identified uh, and that we think is, is quite reasonable in terms of saying, well, if you've only had two doses, then let's test. Let's keep everybody as safe as we can. Um, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do, right? Is keep uh, the children, the employees and their families and and uh, everybody safe who's in the environment or has uh, contact. <laughs> so then uh, the, the last question here in terms of the shortage, how do we address the testing requirement? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. As Arjun said uh, earlier on, you know, an alternative to testing, well, there isn't a safe one. Right. And, and we, I mean, even at that, we know the, the, the rapid antigen testing, um, just because it shows up negative doesn't necessarily mean it's negative. I mean, every time it shows up positive, it's right. They don't get that wrong. <laughs> but uh, negative rapid tests don't necessarily mean somebody's not there. But if it's the best measure we can do, great. But if we can't rely on even that, um, then essentially you're rolling the dice. That is not. Um, an issue that should be facing employers, but it is. So how do we address it? And, and you know, honestly, I don't think we have answers for that other than as Arjun said, if somebody can't be compliant with the policy, then it's an unpaid leave um, is, is you know, the first step at least. And if they're, if, if they're non-compliant by choice, then I have zero sympathy for them. If they're non-compliant 
by virtue of a medical exemption, um, you know, that's a different story. But unfortunately, it seems likely the same result. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether insurance companies will have something to say about that with respect to, um, you know, any short-term or long-term disability benefits uh, on that basis. But, uh, you know, I, I don't have a better answer for you in terms of the, the shortage and, and how to address the testing requirement other than, you know, if, if you're not one of those medical exemptions, then too bad. <laughs> Um, so I recognize we've, we've been at this now for almost an hour and a half and uh, really appreciate everyone's participation. The questions, the comments, and the, sh the sharing of information um, is always valuable, not just to us, but to everybody else uh, attending. Um, thanks again to everyone for both uh, joining in and sticking around and uh, always as always sharing information you know we do this uh, because we want to get information out there to as many people as possible and uh, and share our knowledge and, and what we learn from from each other as well so anytime uh, you know we put one of these on we encourage you to invite anyone and everyone you know in the sector um, we love talking to people and meeting new people and if you do have follow-up questions, please feel free to contact any one of us. Uh, our contact information is up there. You can visit our website, like we said, and we will do our best to get these up, uh, get these edited, processed, and posted on our website on the broadcast tab. And in the meantime, you can go back and review any of our previous webinars uh, in video or podcast format, as well as our other podcasts and content that's up there. Thanks, everyone. And, um, you know, stay safe and stay well. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, do this in person sometime in the not too distant future. Um, have a great day. And uh, thank you, of course, to Arjun, Brandon, and Danielle for everything today as well.